You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, so before we get uh, going with the second half, um, I need to do some some business with you guys here. You can look at my... I have a billboard on my computer now. Um, so as uh, Gil said, I'm the executive director of 1517, the Legacy Project. If you haven't... If you're not aware of our, our site and you haven't checked it out, I'd really ask you to do that today, if you could at all. It's 1517legacy.com, 1517legacy.com. Um, we actually host nine different projects. And our... our uh, but we, our mission is basically to get the gospel of Christ Jesus out in as many ways as possible to as many people as possible. We host several different websites. We host several different podcasts. We own a, a publishing house. Um, we have over 45 books in our catalog. We publish about seven new books a year. Um, most of the new publishings are from people that were trained by Rose, Rod Rosenblatt. Some of them aren't, but most of them are. We actually, we have a, one of our projects is Southern uh, California Campus Ministry Initiative. And it's a really unique one that I, I really am trying to get us some support to keep doing. We actually sponsor an evangelist who goes out onto secular college campuses and some of the most liberal colleges in California and, ev- and does direct street level evangelism. And he works for us full time and that's what he does. Um, he just goes out to many different college campuses every week and proclaims the gospel of Christ Jesus in their um, free speech zones. And uh, it's, it's amazing how many people have been brought to the faith through that proclamation. We also uh, host a radio show that airs on KKLA, which is um, Salem Broadcasting Network, called You Are Forgiven, where we broadcast every Sunday um, what what is called what Ferdy would have termed first order proclamation gospel sermons. Um, in other words, pastors that are getting on there and talking about Christ's death and resurrection for you specifically for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, and it's it's funny we air those at um, three in the morning on well I would call it Friday night and Saturday night but it's probably actually. Saturday morning and Sunday morning, right? Three in, three in the morning when people would be coming out of the bars from their stupors and whatnot. And uh, we have had several people, I think three now, um, call uh, one of our pastors that's a host on that show and, and tell him, listen, I was going to kill myself tonight. And I heard the gospel for the first time. And I decided to give give talking to you a shot before I uh, before I do this. Three different times to one of our pastors. KKLA is kind of a uh, Michael Medved and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I'm not listening to KKLA. Um, I mean, it's but it's, it's a Christian radio station in, in L.A. Very big, very big audience. We're actually, and we're extending that program into San Diego. And we're looking to extend it into other places around the country, too. So check that out. The other just small piece of business I need to tell you about, you'll hear Rod talk um, later on, tell stories about his dad. Some of you heard him speak last night. Um, Rod and I, along with my son Caleb and another colleague of ours, Adam Francisco, host a podcast called the Thinking Fellows Podcast. It's at thinkingfellows.com. 
we basically sit down around the table for about an hour once a week and pour some bourbon and uh, light some pipes and we talk theology for about 45 minutes and and have you you know invite you guys to eavesdrop in on the conversation we've done uh we've gone through the subjects of the what's called of the lochi communities the subject of theology 23 episodes on that um we've done a 20 i think six episode series on christian apologetics um we've done a series on great christian uh, great thinkers of the christian faith I mean, we're really trying to keep it tight. We try to keep it tight. We give you, I like to say that we give, we give the listener the 30,000 foot view on the topic for 45 minutes in a conversational style. So if you'd like to check that out, we'd appreciate it. We could use your support. We're always looking for all kinds of support. Um, feedback on the website, um, buying our products on, on the store, which is shop1517legacy.com. Um, your prayers. Um, really, we are focused on proclaiming the gospel of Christ Jesus to as many people as we can. Um, and of course, if you're able, your financial support is always welcome. All right. Uh, enough of that. Um, that's that's the hard part for me. Doing the rest of the teaching, that's easy. That's the <laughs> that's the hard part. <laughs> hard part done. Um, Gil reminded me of something that I usually try to address in the first half, but t- just totally forgot. Um, he reminded me that not everybody in the room is a father, and I say to that, you know. That's, get on with it, yeah. <clears throat> no, this is what I say to that. Um, I've been asked all. I've been asked, "Hey, does your book apply to people that aren't fathers? Um, does your book can women read your book and all this stuff?" Uh, and I say, "Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The book is written to tell, uh, to be an encouragement to men generally, right? There's whole sections in here on just the importance if you're not a father, or if you didn't have one." Um, the importance of not only finding a mentor or mentors that are a man that will sit down with you and that will just be there for you and or being that person to somebody else. Um, in the 90s, I mean, I, I could spend another two hours just on the crisis of masculinity in America, but I, I won't because I get too upset. Um, but in the 1990s, the American poet Robert Bly saw this coming. And this is the early 90s. I think this is like 91, 92. Right, yeah. I think grew up Lutheran, um, now an unbeliever, and he he wrote a book called Iron John. Um, if you're, you know, if you were sort of in your mid twenties or early thirties in the nineties, you might have read it. It was sort of somewhat of a national phenomenon. And basically, what Iron John does is it from it's kind of esoteric and from the perspective of retelling of a, the fairy tale of Iron John. He, he tells the story of what it kind of takes to be a man and sort of the process. And then he goes through some of the details. This is in 1990, okay? Some of the details of what we've lost and why men are not active in society, why they're not active in the home, why, why he, is, as a prophet, believes there's going to be, this problem will get even worse as time goes by. You know, now we sit here in 2017 and um, it's, it's gone. Right, so those three questions I asked at the beginning of the last section: how how will we expect them to want to be fathers and men if they've never seen these things? That's a real question. Think about the the images that you get on TV that have to do with being a man or being a father. You know, the one I love to hate the most. Well, I hate all the Allstate commercials. Every I would never buy Allstate insurance just because of their commercials. I hate all of the Allstate commercials. They piss me off. Um, but there's there's one, and I don't even know who it is, but um, 
it's sort of the quintessential, I think, way we view, view men in our society right now. So mom is off on a business trip and she's calling in on Skype or something like that. Now, first of all, um, it's obvious, it becomes obvious through, and this is why I hate it so much, it becomes obvious throughout the, the commercial that she's not only the main breadwinner in the family, but she's the one who completely takes care of the house too, right? She's the superwoman in the scenario and it's revealed pretty quickly that he's the idiot. And this is sort of how it goes, right? So she's calling in to see how dad's doing with the kiddo and he's holding the baby just right in front of the camera so that basically all they show mom's screen, all she can see is, you know, the two heads talking at her. And as the camera pans back, looking at what's actually going on behind the dad, is the house is a wreck, there's a pile of dishes this high in the sink, there's spaghetti sauce all over the wall, and it's obvious that he's an incompetent idiot who can't take care of his child. You know, that's the picture we get. In fact, the only pictures that you generally see of uh, positive parenting on behalf of men are um, in situations like on the modern family where the, the two best fathers in the thing are gay. You know, and I think it's it's tragic, right? This is a this is a tragic scenario, um, and it re, what just on even a non-theological side, what it requires of men, I think, is what Robert Bly said. Um, it requires us to get together and encourage one another. Um, he asked in his uh, he did a gathering of men, which was a gathering like this, and he'd go around and do lectures. And Bill Moyers recorded an interview with him about it, which you can find on YouTube. Just called the a get. The whole thing called a gathering of men. And in this, one of the things that Robert Bly does is he'll come into a room like this. It'll be older men and younger men. <clears throat> I'm gonna try to get out, get through this without um, tearing up a little bit. But he'll ask, he'll ask the older men in the room, and this is in the 90s, guys. He'll ask the older men in the room. He said, "Could you tell me of a time when a when a man?" impacted your life in a way that you know quasi changed the course of your life or that meant a lot to you and all the men all the older men most of the older men can do it right and as they tell their stories they're they're weeping i mean these are on the whole like world war ii vets who can't get through a story of telling about a time when a man stepped up for them or supported them or simply put their arm around them and told them i'm proud of you and what you're doing they can't get through these stories. Goes through the younger men, 90s, right? So think of if you, I don't know how old you are, but if you were 20 in the 90s, this is you. Um, he says, can you guys tell that story? And you know what? Most of them can't. They don't have the stories. Um, and so what, what Robert Bly does is he sort of, puts out a challenge to him. He says, you know, you guys need to tell these guys those stories. You guys need to get together with these guys and tell them the stories so that they can have those stories to tell to other men. Um, and it's, I think it's really important. One time I was doing this in Beverly Hills and I said that kind of thing and I said, again, this is not even on the theological side, the left-hand kingdom side here. I said, this is important. This is important for us to do. We have to do this. And he said, well, he raised his hand and all up. He said, well, what do you expect me to do? I said, you see that guy over there? He goes, yeah. I said, get a cup of coffee with him once a week. He goes, well, what do you expect me to say to him? I go, not much. Ask him how his week's going. 
Tell him you're proud of him when he tells you something that he did in that week that is worthy of a little bit of praise. Give him your number if he ever needs somebody to talk to or to, to help him with something. Pretty simple. And you'll change that man's life. I can tell you as somebody who didn't have a dad growing up, you will change that man's life for the better. All right, that's got a little soapboxy there. Sorry. <clears throat> All right. So I want the, the what what I like to do in this little session is introduce you to a couple of the concepts um, that are in the book. All right. I want to introduce you to the concept of archetype. Um, to a concept that we get from uh, the, the Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas called analogia entis, or an analogy of being. And one that we get from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called eucatastrophe. Okay? Uh, so what is, what is archetype? Uh, archetype's pretty simple. Um, you know, there's been many people who have acknowledged the idea of archetype, many scholars, but a lot of people will draw this back to the um, the the student of Freud, uh, Jung, right? And as he draws out this idea that in every society um, there are pictures that reemerge, right? There are concepts that reemerge that we call archetypal concepts or archetypal pictures. And that they're pretty common from society to society, even if these cultures don't have a lot of connection. And these ideas... Um, they bring up in us a sense of this thing must be true because we sort of see it everywhere. It's all it's it's there all the time. Um, some of them are like the concept of a universal flood. Um, other other concepts are the 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 idea that something on this earth here is broken and needs a rescue. Right? And one of the big concepts that's out there that we'll get back to when we talk about eucatastrophe is that of an outside savior. Um, coming in to save that brokenness, which is also acknowledged. When we talk about um, fatherhood, that's another archetype out there. Um, it's another sort of throughout time universally acknowledged need um, and sort of internal desire and want. And it's represented in literature. It's represented in song. The idea that a father is good and gracious and kind and forgiving, um, that that's an archetypal picture. It's not a foreign thing. And I only bring that up to to sort of juxtapose for you what an odd situation we're in here in 21st century America, where for the first time in you know a good portion of human history, that archetype is being like squashed out culturally. And it's being pushed out of the picture. Um, Again, this plays in, this has left-hand kingdom effects, this has right-hand kingdom effects. If you're not familiar with those terms, that has sort of outside the gospel of Christ effects in the real world, in the, the civil world out here as we mish around with everybody. And it's got effects in the church. If you reference back to that that first lecture, you know, that has to do with the, the rate of fatherlessness, suicides, runaways, behavioral, and then the rate of those that persist in the faith. Now, when we absolutely destroy the archetype of father, we're we are really putting in danger one of the things, uh, one of the primary ways we can talk about God in an effective manner. Um, the Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, you know, in many of his works, he was concerned with how do we talk about God, how do we describe God, how do we tell who God is, how do we communicate this effectively. 
Um, and that makes sense <clears throat> because if you think about how we tend to describe God, we use a bunch of descriptors, right? Um, we'll say he's omnipresent. We'll say he's omniscient. We'll say he's omnipotent. Um, we'll say he's, you know, from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, all those types of things. We, we, we describe things because God is so far above us. You know, outside of the incarnate Christ, God is so far above us that he's kind of, it's hard to describe somebody who is all powerful. What does that mean? Who's all knowing? What does that mean? Who's all present? What does that mean? And Aquinas uh, at one point said that, you know, one of the more effective ways of communicating about God is um, by means of an analogia entis or an analogy of being. Right. So this would simply be saying there are some um, archetypes that are analogous to God that we can point to when somebody says, what is God's like? And we can say God is like that. Right. And the, <clears throat> so one of the questions in theology for a long time, in fact, Rod tells a story about when he was sitting around with the, uh, the White Horse Inn guys and they were having a conversation about these analogies of being. And I think it was Mike asked you, do you actually think there are effective analogies of being to God out in the world? And I think Rod's retort was, yeah, there's millions of them. We call them dads. <laughs> you know, good dads. And so... Um, fathers, I think, do serve in that role. They are an analogia entis to a good and gracious God the Father. You know, so that when a child says, what is God like? It's not necessarily wrong to point to a good father and say, he's like that over there. Take it back to the third question of the three questions that I asked earlier today, which I'll repeat for you. How do we expect our young boys, our children, to believe in a God who is called Father and saves through the work of another man, his son, if they've never seen a father or man who is either good or described as such? You might, might be able to change the question of this way. How do we expect our young boys or our children to believe in a God who is Father and save them through the work of another man, his son, if we deny that good fathers do serve as an analogia entis to God the Father. So what are we saying when we say this? Well, when I say that a good earthly father is an analogy of being to God our heavenly father, I'm not saying that this is univocal. In other words, I'm not it's it's uh, he's not a hundred percent like God the Father. Okay? Uh, and it's not it's he's but at the same time when we say this um, we're not saying that he's un completely unlike God the Father either what we're saying is that a good earthly father is an analogy it's analogical in nature you see I think that when we sort of reconstitute what we think it means to be a dad and we sort of change our idea from a very secular idea, which is sort of like a bump in a log who sits on the chair and drinks beer and watches football, or even a very quote-unquote Christian idea of the guy who's the head disciplinarian in his house making sure that the child is trained upright so that he'll never depart from the ways. If we sort of change our position and understanding of what that means to one that is, I think, very countercultural, both to society and to the commonly to the church and we say that what it means to be a father is to be the mouthpiece of grace in your home 
Um, when G.K. Chesterton was asked about the father being the head of the home, he said, yeah, I think the father is the head of the home. So let me explain. I think the father is the head of the home because the head is where the mouth is. And I think it's the dad's job to tell about the forgiveness of sins in the home. And it takes a mouth to do the telling. Okay, so if we reformulate our thinking and we say then that the fathers are the mouthpieces of God's grace in the home, it's pretty easy for us to, and not unbiblical for us to take the leap to say that, yeah, fathers are shadowy pictures of God's grace and forgiveness um, that is that belongs to our children, that belongs to our family on account of Christ. So in that way, I really do think it's accurate for us to say that a good father is an analogy of being, in a sense, to God the Father. Now again, in talking with Gil over the break, I think it's important for us to go back to my last point of the last lecture and say, that's pretty heavy, Scott. You really expect me to be an analogy of being to God in my house? And I say, no, I don't expect you to try to be that at all. I think you were already declared that. I'm not asking you to attempt here. I'm just asking us to acknowledge. I'm asking us to stop downplaying our role as men, whether you have children or not, and as fathers. I'm asking us to stop swallowing whole hog the lies that we've been fed, both by society and by the church, about what our role is in the home. It's not a try thing, because the more you try, I think the more you're going to fail. That failing, of course, when you do and you will, much like we, me with my son in my fridge, <clears throat> is forgiven. This is not an issue of your salvation. It's an issue of who you are called to be as a picture of grace in your home. We always fail in our callings and our vocations. You know, if somebody screws up at work, I was telling Gil, they don't usually kick themselves for the rest of their lives. But for good reason, when we screw up in this vocation, we get even more upset. But we can't stop to see this as a calling, as a vocation. You know, as a declaration of who you are, knowing that we'll always fail in those and that forgiveness is ours freely in Christ and our children's freely in Christ. You're the mouthpiece. You're not the thing that's actually... Uh, you're not you're not actually Christ. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's another concept that I think works out really well here. Um, Rod will tell some of the stories of his dad's deliverance and his dad's rescuing him uh, when he was a child, and he'll talk about those as magic. I think it's important for us to understand that that kind of magic is uh, really necessary. Tolkien, when he was writing both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, he gave a lecture um, called On Fairy Stories um, where he, you know, he's sort of explaining what he's trying to do as he's retelling some of these myths and if this is sort of um, overtly Christian or not. Um, and he says in those lectures, he says, you know, this, my point, in fact, one of his greatest, critic, Tolkien's greatest criticisms of Lewis was always that Lewis was sort of too overt with his examples of, um, and Christian themes. He thought he should have nuanced it a little bit more. Um, and so his answer is, no, these aren't meant to be um, overtly Christian. What I present here is a series of eucatastrophes. All right? In other words, a eucatastrophe, all Tolkien did in, in coining that phrase was take the Greek word for good, eu, 
and combine it to the English word catastrophe and you get a good catastrophe. So he says, I tell these stories and they're a series of good catastrophes. And I expect that these good catastrophes will resonate with the readers and maybe even especially Christian readers because the story of our salvation is the greatest you catastrophe ever told. You know, the, if you think about this in terms of a fairy tale, this is where the uh, wicked witch has come in and she's... Uh, put the princess to sleep and she's overtaken the kingdom and it's overgrown with thorns and thistles and its gate is now being guarded by a dragon. And just when you think all hope is lost, when things couldn't get any darker, when time seems to be running out, when there's nothing left that anybody on the inside of the kingdom can do to save the kingdom, all of a sudden from the outside comes a savior, a white knight. And he beats back the thistles with his sword, slays the dragon, kills the witch, kisses the princess, and all of a sudden the kingdom is turned back to what it was always intended to be. You know, that's a eucatastrophe. And the stories that exist archetypally in literature throughout the world, they sort of reaffirm this type of eucatastrophe in, uh, in, uh, the everyday, in our everyday lives. And they point to the greatest eucatastrophe which ever occurred, which is our salvation in Christ Jesus. You know, that moment of magical freedom snatched from the jaws of peril and doom is what we all hope for. And I think that one of the callings of father in the home is to provide these moments to his children. These times when their children think that all hope is lost, when nothing better can happen, to come in and to snatch death away and defeat away and bring hope. Right? I think that there's a sense in which fathers are called in the home to, while they're being mouthpieces of God's grace in the home, that they have to understand that that deliverance is vital to their children. The deliverance that the forgiveness that they proclaim can provide is vital. <clears throat> One of the most common questions I get when I teach this and when we move to the Q&A session, one of the most common questions I get is, well, are you arguing for some sort of permissiveness here? Do you think that children should just be set loose to run free and all you do is walk around like a magical fairy and go, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you? You know, waving your little wand and I say, far be it from that. I think that the, this is a law gospel category. Right? I think that we misunderstand grace and we usually label grace as permissiveness. See, grace can only come and forgiveness can only come when wrong has been done and when that wrong has, that wrongdoing has been acknowledged. Right? Otherwise, it is permissiveness. If a child has never done anything wrong in your eyes, there's nothing um, that, for them to be forgiven, that's not forgiveness. That's not grace. That's permissiveness. But at the same time, I think that we greatly underestimate how much of our children's lives are wrapped up in the law. And I also think we greatly overestimate the effectiveness of applying more law in their lives. Okay, We think that kids are free because we think that our lives suck so much. We've got to get up. We're the ones that got to get up at six. We're the ones that got to get them ready for school. We're the ones that got to go to work. We're the ones that got to make sure they eat dinner. We're the ones that got to get them bathed and teeth brushed into sleep. Right? And we never see it from their perspective. Flip that one around. They don't get to determine when they wake up. You do. Right? They don't get to determine what their day is going to look like. 
what school they're going to go to, what time they're going to go to school, what time they're going to get a break at recess, what time they're going to eat lunch, what time they're going to get off, what they're going to do when they get out of school. Even in the most permissive homes, do you think the children choose what time they go to soccer practice or eat dinner? They, they, their lives are dictated by legal requirements that are just placed on them in their everyday lives. They decide almost nothing. And I would argue that that's the case even in homes where it looks like they're ruling the roost. They need moments of deliverance. These moments lend clarity to the idea that we are delivered in Christ from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Again, how do we expect them to believe that this kind of stuff can happen if they've never seen a semblance of it in their everyday lives from the person that says that they love them the most? Like we give them actual credence to the things that we are asking them to believe. The law is common to all of us. And kiddos have more law in their lives than we can ever imagine. It's the gospel that's magic. And our kiddos need more gospel. Not more law. They need more of this magic. They need a magic kingdom. Oftentimes when I'm teaching this, I'm asked, okay, so what does this look like practically? Everybody wants to know the practical. How do I practically do this? Um, beyond my aversion to the practical, because I think my one of my heroes, Gerhard Ferdi, would say that's a theology of glory, right? That's trying to go around the cross of Christ in order to look behind the veil and see what's practically going on there. Right? I think that I'll take my own advice and maybe describe what this actually looks like by telling you a quick story. Um, I've started going to the Mockingbird uh, NYC conference as often as I can. Um, I actually was honored to be a speaker at the conference last year, but the two years before that I went as an attendee, and I would go this year, but I'm going to be on a backpacking trip in Utah, so there goes that. But um, I love that conference. But I need to explain to you that I'm an awful conference goer. I, I'm not the greatest at conferences. I've learned many, many things from Rod Rosenblatt. And one of them is to disdain large group meetings and to sit in the back with my computer in my lap um, with a curmudgeonly look on my face, busy at work. You know, And that's what I tend to do at conferences. Um, I'm especially not one of these guys that'll wake up at 6.30 so that I can make the 7 o'clock devotion at a conference. Um, but um, during this first Mockingbird conference that I attended, my way was paid by somebody else. And these people that have paid my way, they are all about conference going, including the 7 a.m. devotion. So when they're like, see you at 7 a.m. for devotion, I said, okay. <laughs> um, so I showed up. I went as far back as I could um, at Calvary St. George, which if you've ever been there in New York, that's pretty far back. Um, sat with my computer on my lap. I'm fairly convinced, or at least I like to tell myself that I was writing portions of being dad while I'm there. And they have at this Mockingbird conference a conference chaplain, which I think is an excessively wonderful idea because this is heavy-duty stuff they do here. Like, I have seen people come to the faith at these conferences. And so having somebody there, having a pastor there that can sit with these people when they've come to the faith, that can follow up with them a little bit, that can direct them to a congregation where they hear the gospel of Christ Jesus, um, I think is a really great idea. He had one other job, and that was to do the morning devotions. 
And so I'm sitting there and I'm doing this in the back. And all of a sudden, his name's James Monroe. I hear Pastor Monroe get up and he says, let me tell you a story about my father. And I'm all of a sudden, I'm paying attention. Set the computer down and I'm just listening. He said, you know, if you were to ask me today, I would tell you that my sister and I are the greatest of friends. But when I was 12 and she was 10, sacrificial self-giving love did not define our relationship. So as I recall, one day we were on the second floor landing of our house and we were having a horrendous argument. I was screaming at her. She was screaming at me. And at one point I got so sick of her screaming that I balled up my fist, cocked back my arm and punched her in the stomach as hard as I could. And he said, just when I punched her, she did what she was probably supposed to do after being punched and opened her mouth to scream. Fearing that my mother would hear her screaming, I looked around and saw on the, on the table a spray bottle sitting there. He said, now some of you who are older might remember when it was still legal to sell DDT for home use. For those of you that are younger, he says, DDT was such a poisonous insecticide that it's now illegal to buy in the United States. He says, so I grabbed this bottle, what turned out to be DDT, and as she opened her mouth to cry, I stuck the nozzle in her mouth and sprayed as much as I could with one spray right into her mouth. And he said, at that moment, my mother appeared out of nowhere. Now, side note, I'm sometimes accused of not giving moms a lot of credit in this lecture. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I will say that uh, I, I am constantly amazed, this with my wife too, how I think they must pull women aside like in seventh grade and teach them how to open a tear in the space-time continuum like this and step right through it to appear out of nowhere, which is just what his mother did. And he said, without saying a word, she snatched up my sister, ran down the stairs, out into the street, flagged down the first car that came by and went to the hospital. Um, in California, I always have to clarify, listen, this is in the 1950s, it's in Iowa or something like that. It's perfectly safe for him to flag down a car and go to the hospital. Um, and he says, and I went upstairs and I sat down on my bed and I waited. I waited for, I, for what I knew was coming. And he said, I didn't have to wait long. After about 20 minutes, I heard the door open and close. I heard footsteps on the stairs walking up to my room. And then I saw the door open and I knew what was about to happen. It was going to be the apocalyptic second coming of Christ and it was going to happen right there in my bedroom. He said, my dad opened the door. He looked at me. He looked at my face. He saw the fear, the shame, the sorrow, and the despair on my face. And he says, and he did something I'll never forget. He simply knelt down and he opened his hands and Jim says, I ran to him like a shot. And he says, and I can still feel those arms around me to this day as he engulfed me in his embrace and I know whose arms they really are. They are the arms with nail-scarred hands. That's about as close as I'm going to get for you to practical that's what it looks like. You know, in that day, Jim got both mercy and grace. He got mercy. <clears throat> My friend Kurt Winrich, as he describes mercy and grace to his high school students at our church, likes to say, when I tell students about the difference, 
I like to say that mercy is forgiving the million dollar debt. You owed me a million dollars and I said, the slate is wiped clean. You owe me nothing. He says, mercy we can usually handle. Mercy isn't that offensive to us. He says, grace, on the other hand, we hate. Grace is completely offensive to us because grace is after mercy has wiped the debt clean, filling up that now empty bank account with a million dollars. That one we just can't wrap our heads around. In one gesture, without his father even speaking a word, on that day, James Monroe's debt was wiped clean and his bank account was filled back up. His fear, I'm sure, was all of our fear. His fear was that he had done something too much. He had gone too far. There was no getting past this. He had hurt, maybe killed his sister, and he was out of the family. His debt was unforgivable. And with a gesture, his dad wiped that debt clean. And with a hug, his dad brought him back into the family. That's exactly what happens to us. That's magic. That will turn, <laughs> that will bring belief and, and sustain belief in incredible ways. Magic is the I forgive you when the I condemn you is what's expected or even warranted. It's the everyday things like this that dads do the yes when everyone else says, no, don't do that, it's too dangerous. The go for it, I believe in you, that create magical moments that remind children that magic just might be possible. And sometimes when I do this in mixed company, they'll say, well, don't you think moms do that too? And I say, sure, moms can do that, I guess. Um, I had a great mom. Again, my dad died when I was two. My mom did a wonderful job of being both law and gospel in my home and quite frankly, more often gospel than law. But let me ask you, let me set a scenario for you. Your, your kid is maybe six or seven years old. They've been riding a bike for maybe a year or so. They're out. You guys live on a cul-de-sac, right? They're out in the cul-de-sac playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, riding bikes around the cul-de-sac. And you and your wife go out in the front yard. You're maybe sipping on a cup of coffee or an adult beverage. You've got your arm around her. You're just enjoying the family bliss that's going on there. For once, not everybody's fighting. They're riding around having a good time. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see your, your son or daughter, probably your son, who's you know not been riding a bike very long, and he's all lined up, and about 50 yards ahead of him is his best buddy who's got a piece of plywood and a brick. Right? And he's about to take his first evil Knievel move and jump his bike for the first time. And I like to say, what's your reaction, and what's your wife's reaction? I know my reaction. Go get another brick. You know, I know my wife's reaction. Where's his helmet? Where's his knee pads? Oh my gosh, get a smaller brick. This isn't universal, but I think it's fairly close. This was illustrated to, a, to us and our family not too long ago when my daughter called. We, she doesn't live with us anymore. She lives down in Irvine. Um, and driving in Southern California is like uh, a battle. Like it's literally... You get onto the 405 freeway and it's like you're going into battle. Um, and she wanted to drive from Irvine to this family event that was going up in Morro Bay. 
which meant that she would have had to be on uh, several of the most dangerous freeways in Southern California to get there. And she calls us up and she says, hey, I'm, I know you guys can't go, but I'm thinking about going to this family thing. I was going to drive up on Saturday, drive home on Monday. What do you think? Um, my wife automatically says, no way. You can't do that. All right? And not even to set myself up as a hero, I, said, I asked my daughter, I said, well, what do you think? Magic. Magic. You see, she had, she's taking a step there. She's wondering whether or not we're going to say go for it or no, you can't. Whether or not there's going to be trust and grace and mercy or whether or not there's going to be more application of the law and limitations. What do you think? She says, I think I'll be fine. Go for it. See, I think we want our children to believe in a little bit of magic. I think we all want our children to believe that seemingly impossible things are sometimes possible. Again, think of it this way. Is this the case or not? Do we want our children to believe in this type of magic, this type of deliverance? Well, impossible things. Our redemption is impossible unless it's on account of Christ. God's fatherly love for us seems impossible, yet He does the impossible by giving His own Son that we might receive adoption as sons. See, these are magical, miraculous things. And we ask our children to believe in them every single day. I'm suggesting that if they had a little bit more of the practical, everyday magic in their lives, it might make it a little bit easier to believe in the big one, to rely on the big one. I like to say the more magic, the better. When my kids were, um, when we lived in Carson City, they homeschooled for a while. Um, does anybody homeschool their kids? I, so we did. So as I say this, don't be offended because I did this myself. There's a particular type of tyranny that occurs in homeschooling for children um, that if you do not homeschool your children, you'll be completely unaware of. And it's this. They never get a break and you never get a break. Like most families, you know, between wake up and when they go to school is hard and between when you pick them up and when they go to bed is hard, right? Because there's so much going on. For the homeschool family that go to school, you know, there's never a break there. And that's for the children, too. They eat and sleep and work and study and learn all in the same place. There's never a change of venue. There's never a change of location. They always have got the same teacher. If you don't like them, you're up a creek. No change in classes, right? You might be able to switch from mom to dad, but eventually, you know, Dad's going to be bad at math or something. You're going to have to go to mom. Something, something there is going to happen. Right? There's a particular type of tyranny. And we saw this in our kids. <clears throat> and when I was, this was when I was finishing my PhD program. And um, how shall I say this? Uh, we didn't have any money. <clears throat> we, were, we were pretty poor. Um, we actually were at the point where sometimes in order to get groceries for the next week, we'd hold a garage sale. Um, but we thought it was important for our kids to do something um, that they did all the time before we were, I was in grad school and we were this destitute, and that was uh, get a ski pass and go up to Tahoe at the local municipal resort and ski when they could because they they grew up in the junior ski program. They'd all been skiing and snowboarding since they were like four or five years old, and it was sort of a normal part of their lives. And at this point, we didn't know if they were going to be able to do it. So the winter when I was working on my PhD, 
dissertation, we sort of would had garage sales and we begged and we borrowed. We didn't steal, I think, um, to get enough money to get them all three passes and season rentals so that they could go up and ski a couple times a week. And so every Tuesday morning and every Thursday morning, instead of working in my office at the house writing my dissertation, I'd pack all my books and stuff and literally into a milk crate and grab my computer and put it on top of the milk crate and I'd go out into the hallway. Am I allowed to cuss just a little? Okay. It's for the sake of accuracy. That's the only reason I do it here. Um, I'd go out on Tuesday and Thursday into the hallway and I'd say, okay, everybody get up and get your shit in a pile. We're going skiing. You know, and those kids, every morning when you tell the kids to get up, they're like, oh, another day of oatmeal and history with mom. You know, but on Tuesday and Thursday, they'd come running out of their rooms, their shit would be in a pile in their arms, and they'd get thrown into the back of the car, and we'd go up to Incline Village. It's the little municipal ski resort, you know, the one that's owned by the city, so there's not much to it, but it's great. And I'd go sit in the lodge and from about, you know, we'd get up there around 9 and from about 9 to 12, I'd drink coffee and work on my dissertation. From about 12 to 3, I'd drink beer and work on my dissertation. And they'd ski, you know, and have these magical times. To this day, if you ask any one of my children, whether you ask the 22-year-old, the 20-year-old, or the 18-year-old about some of the most magical moments in their lives, they'll tell you two things. (coughs) Movie releases at midnight and skiing during that year I was working on my dissertation. And they believe, and it hit them, and it influenced them, and it brought them closer to us as a family. They knew they belonged. The more magic, the better. The story of our redemption is not only a story of deliverance and mercy, it's a magical tale. If children have moments of magic in their lives, they find it easier to believe that the improbable, that the impossible that the miracle that is their salvation might actually be true. So as I end this, I like to say to you guys, let's go make and receive some magic. Amen. Thanks. Um, a couple things. Um, so you have the books in the store, right? Because I usually like, this is the point where I usually turn into an immoral salesman and like try to get you to buy them. But if you don't, if you don't, um, if you're not going to be at church tomorrow, or you can't get them in the store. Um, I really don't think it is out of order to say that what you'll read in this book is not like any other book about men and dad that I've seen out there right now. Um, I I only say that because other people have said it to me. The other thing that people have said to me is that they bought one, and I'm not just I don't make that much money on them, so don't think this, please. Um, that they bought one and wish they'd bought more because they need their. It's a giveaway thing. If that makes any sense. Um, to that end, um, if you can't get them from the bookstore tomorrow, you can go on to our website at shop fifteen seventeen legacy. Um, and if you buy them, if you put in the code advent, um, you get five dollars off on our site with that with that code. If you buy a couple of them, if you buy two of them and you send me an email saying that you have, I'll send you one of mine out of my stock for free signed to whoever you want to give it to um, out of my own pocket. I do that because I believe I believe the message. <laughs> you know, it, it changed my world when I heard it from Rod back in the 90s at Concordia and then when I heard it again in 2003 here. And I believe it has the potential to really help in some degree with this problem that we're facing in our society. 
um, and in the church. So, and I think actually um, one of our big focuses is evangelism and apologetics, and I think this is a pretty strong apologetic to children. Pretty strong. So, thank you for your time. Um, I also brought, please take them. I really don't want to carry them home. These are free little notepads that are from Thinking Fellows, our podcast. They're just like, you know, I should probably give them to you ahead of time, but sorry. Um, take them with you so I don't have to bring them home. They're, they have our website on the back for the Thinking Fellows podcast. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I and I can tell some stories too from the book too if you want at the end. Yeah. Movie review. Movie review? Captain Fantastic. I haven't seen it. Zig Morgenstern is or Morgenson. He's a, he plays a single father in his okay. homeschooling his kids. Okay. I'll 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 check it out. Yeah. Is it on Netflix or anything? He was also the guy that did History of Violence. But. Okay. Captain Fantastic. I mean, I could give you a movie review of all the Captain Americas if you want. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Can you describe Jim Monroe's story with the DDP or maybe a broad story you might tell with a car and the story you tell in the book where we're looking at a moment in our own lives and we see the recipients of this or for fathers and our kids where we discern that the word of the law has done its work. Well, I think the, it, the, the issue is that we never perceive that the law of God, God has done its work. And our temptation is always to double and triple down. And um, not to get too controversial, but I don't think this is helped by the common perception um, that you'll hear today and that maybe you live by, and so I apologize if you do, um, that mom and dad always have to be on the same page in front of the kids, or that dad's always got to back mom's play or something like that. You know, and I think that um, that what that says that what that says is it's incredibly arrogant because it says not only are you because you're a child always wrong, but we're because we're adults always are always right. And that because we're the, the adults and always right, our express job and the permission we're given is to keep applying the law no matter what, even if you're already broken. And in fact, you're going to get the law applied when I'm not home, you know, for five or six hours. And then when I get home, mom's going to grab me and talk to me. And the expectation on me is to not recognize that the law has already done its work because everybody's been in tears for five hours but to come and to double down with it as if it's going to accomplish something that it already hasn't accomplished in the last five hours. I mean, it's the literal definition of insanity. And doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, expecting the same result. And that's what it is. And our temptation is always towards that insanity. That's part of being poor, miserable sinners. We are Our natural state is in the law and we're drawn to the law. This is from the Apostle Paul. The thing that that we stumble over is the gospel because it makes no sense. It's why it's really why the story of the prodigal son, um, if you've like I said, if you've never 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 been pissed off after hearing it, you probably haven't heard it right, because it's a really offensive tale, and so is this, so is the gospel. Um, but the gospel is the one thing that God has promised will actually change things, will bring life, will bring faith, will bring salvation, and will actually change things. Turn his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So if that's the actual promise, show me that promise in the scriptures about the law. 
Show me that it'll actually act, actually change the behavior. Show me that it'll actually get a child to the point where they believe um, that they're part of the family and that nothing will change that and thus behave accordingly. You know, I think when it, there's, there's a bit of a, and I, I won't get into it, but there's a bit of the third loose, use of law controversy going on in our church right now where pastors emphasize the preaching. For those of you who don't know, that's just the preaching of the law to make you a better Christian, right? As if such a thing can happen. But that's what it is. Um, and my, one of my criticisms have been, of it has been, listen, pastors who do that, they're seeking after the basest kind of morality, too. They're, they're seeking out of the lowest form of behavior and good behavior. Because that's if the law can, uh, can do anything, that's all it can do. And what do I mean by that? You come in with the law, and if you get behavior because of you're coming in with the law, you're going to get behavior either because if they don't, they're going to get punished, or if they don't, you're going to be disappointed in them, right? When do you actually feel like you've succeeded as a parent? When your kid does the right thing because either they're going to get punished or because they're going to be disappointed, or when they do the right thing because they finally get it. They finally realize and on their own want to do that thing because they understand it. it it's become organic to them. Only the gospel produces that. Only the gospel produces that change in behavior. and But our temptation is always to go back to the law. It just is. It's me with the refrigerator door. It, it's just where we are. It's where we live. It's why we, we need to hear it ourselves. It's why we need to come to things like this and have other men put their arms around us and say, you're forgiven for that. You know, because it's an outside word. The law is in us. The gospel's outside of us. Again, that's Paul, right? It's it, the laws in our children too, and the gospels outside of them too. The law is the one thing that they could muster on their own. The gospel has to come from somebody else, and if we do have a calling, I think it's to be that somebody else. Uh, this situation may be unique to our family, but I suspect it's not. Um, and maybe you've had this question before. Uh, my wife stays at home, um, which means that obviously there's just sort of responsibilities just to like keep the ship moving. You yep. Know, people got to get to school with lunch and then they're Yep, bad. absolutely. Uh, the grocery store and make sure whatever. And I mm-hmm. think that in that context, she has expressed frustration that she says it feels like I, I always have to be the law and you always get to be grace. Yep. You get to be the one who gets to come home without having the context of what we had to do today to keep the ship moving. Yeah. So Rod tells a story that I won't... Um, well, maybe I'll tell for him. I don't know. Um, but um, I hope he doesn't get mad at me. His perspective of it is a little bit different than my perspective of it. So he's got this story, and I, I could actually tell the story from my own perspective because I've done it a million times with my wife and my kids, right? So let me not let me make it general, not specific. Your wife's home all day. World War III is going on. Um, you come home, and World War III is still going on. And um, for me, in that situation, nine times out of ten, after hearing Rod's advice, I would have said something like, "Honey, why don't you go, you know, with your friend Kathy and get a drink? I got this." Um, and I'd take it. She'd go off and do something. I'd take it. And my eventual goal was not to like undermine her my goal was just to make things stop 
right? To give everybody a breather. Um, in fact, when she would leave, we wouldn't, even, the kids and I wouldn't even talk about what went on during the day. I'd make some mac and cheese and hot dogs and we'd sit down and watch a movie on the couch eating our mac and cheese and hot dogs. And then here's the follow up. Eventually mom would come home and after everything, after she's gone out and had a few glasses of wine and been able to bitch to her friend Kathy for a half an hour and after the kids have been able to, to breathe, you know, she'd come home and we'd talk about what actually happened in the day, honestly. Like, okay, mom, went overboard here, you went overboard there. Let's forgive each other. Um, let's be that external word to one another in the family. And my wife is finally the one that told me after hearing Rod's story and hearing me tell a couple of these stories, she goes, you know, the days when you do that, that was gospel to me too. She said, you, you think, you tell it from the perspective of you were just delivering the kids, but you got me out of that too. Um, there's an inevitability, and when in the book I say there's an God's love is God's actual love is shown to us, you know, providentially and in our salvation too, right? He He makes the sun to come up, He makes the rain to fall. In other words, stuff's got to happen, and He makes it happen. That's very kin to the situation that your wife is in if she's a stay-at-home mom, right? And in fact, in the book I say when a mom is a stay-at-home mom like that, it's not that her love is any better or worse than the dad's love that I'm describing here. It's just different. It's more providential in its character. Um, and that's not, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, I think we are the ones who in our, in our sin and in our constant attempts at seeking out a theology of glory try to, uh, put a hierarchy on these types of things. Um, and I think we have to avoid that. Mothering is not a hard calling. It's impossible. Impossible. Yeah. So I think the best thing on my end has just been to hear the words of my wife and say, you know, those moments can deliver me too. That's probably too close to practical advice. Sorry. Uh, uh, we had a, a guest speaker a couple of years ago who said something that's always stuck with me. He said, you know, the Bible actually has nothing to say about yeah. And he said it does have a lot to say about mothering and fathering. Yeah. And he just you had just said with good mothering, would you you find that to, to be the case that really dads do need kind of the book that you've written? Yeah. No, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, you don't you don't get a lot of uh, here's parenting advice. I I think it's a, it's a modern invention to be honest with you, and it's a modern invention of trying. I, listen, I don't want to get too much into this, but I, in my thinking about this, I think that one of the ways we've tried to lift women up is by saying there's no difference between men and women. Oh. And we think, we think in doing that, actually I think, in, I think that the perception was it was like this, men and women, and if we say there's no difference, we can do this, and now what's happening is we're willing to acknowledge difference, but it's only that women are better. Um, and I think there's a struggle there, but the, the problem is, is this initial shift was wrong. It was never like this. It was always like this with the acknowledgement that they're different and they bring two different things to the table. You know, father and mother, father and mother, being father and mother in the home is the goal, right? That's, that's, the, that's the created intent. That's a created order. That's going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong because of death. It'll go wrong because of divorce. It'll go wrong because people are born outside of marriage, right? That's going to go wrong, but it's still, it's still the intent there and the different roles complementing one another and lifting each other up and quite honestly, forgiving one another with that external word is really important. 
I mean, best case scenario is you're the mouthpiece in the home, but who's going to forgive you? That's got to come from outside of you to you too. You know, so if she wants to be the proclaimer of the gospel, be it to me when I suck at being a dad. That's hard for mom. You probably need your men friends. Yeah. When she's not around. Absolutely. And and probably even when she is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, Scott, I can back to Oscar. There's plenty of times that my wife Helen has taught me off of it. Just what you say, she's stuck all day, but take me into the weekend mm-hmm. and I'm out of my own. Oh, you're the one that leaves the fridge open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's, that's what you should do. That's what you should do. It's funny, there are... Yeah. <laughs> what time? Oh, too much. You gotta love men's groups. That's like, hashtag didn't happen in a women's group. Okay. Uh, it's great. There have been some some churches that have started that um, that I've gone to. I mean, I can even put you in touch with what some people have done. The one that I can think of is um, my buddy Paul and Grace in Ventura. Um, he started a, um, I guess it's like a men's group, and he's a pastor, but he did. It's great. He didn't do it in his church, and he started it at this. Uh, it's called Gill's Camera Shop. In Ventura, it's on downtown Ventura. It's right by all the bars and everything, and they do it. One, I think they only do it once a month, but it's been a rousing success for him because he doesn't go there as Pastor Koch. He goes there as Paul, and they they read Being Dad first, and then they read some other things, and it's been a just a great success. And yeah, all right, I'll tell some stories. Yeah. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.